Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. to begin this morning by first off thanking the people who very kindly stood here and allowed me to go travel. The trip was ultimately very rewarding. I'm really glad that I got to go. It was just difficult, as you might imagine, because both Janine and I have uh, this bronchial thing happening now. And so please keep her in your prayers. She is at home and and quite sick. But I'm very, very grateful to Micah for standing here last Sunday. I thought he did a very good job. Mm -hmm. I'm very thankful for Steve standing here on Wednesday night. 
And I'm very grateful that Don Tyndall came out of retirement <laughs> just so that he could stand here two weeks ago. When I got home, I got a letter from Don that I'm going to share with all of you in just a moment. If you get an opportunity, go either to our website, go to the listen link, and then click on conference messages, and then scroll to the bottom, and you will find the teaching that Roger Skeppel and I did in Texas last week. It's also on my blog. There's direct links to those messages, pastorjimmick.com. If you go there, you'll find the Texas messages. Uh, it is always, always a great pleasure to get to teach with Roger Skeppel, and I thought that this year, though he is always good, I thought that he did a really exceptional job. He and I got to talk about the kingdom, which is a very expansive New Testament topic, well, biblical topic all the way through. And it is such an expansive topic that he and I spoke on the phone a couple of times to say, how are we going to, in only four nights, cover this topic. So he spoke on introducing the concept of kingdom and explaining the spiritual aspect of the kingdom that God has always been a king from the very beginning. Soon as we begin to read about God, we see him acting like a king, which is why we refer to him as a sovereign. And from the very moment that he made people he started instructing them and expecting his instructions to be obeyed because he's the king. Then for the next two nights, I taught on the literal physical kingdom to talk about Israel and the kingdom to come. And then the fourth night, he closed by talking about the church as a kingdom, not the kingdom, but the kingdom of Christ in a spiritual sense within the church. And even though he and I never compared notes, we didn't say, you say this, then I'll say that. It was another one of those moments when our teaching just fit together hand in glove. And you're missing a good bet if you don't go and listen to what Roger and I taught on the kingdom last week. So please go there, do that, look it up, you'll enjoy it. Now... Yesterday, I spoke to Barney Johnson, and the oncologist has declared him cancer-free. So. But wait, my news gets better. He is going to be teaching at the conference in Chattanooga. I was talking to him yesterday, and he said, you know, the last time that I stood in a pulpit... It was at GCA. And he said, you, you remember how I told everybody I had a, a little cough I was dealing with, which turned out to be his cancer? And so this past year has been extremely difficult for him. I don't know if you heard through the grapevine that he had a heart attack as well. He said yesterday that that was apparently a machine-based glitch. He did not, as far as he's concerned, have a heart attack. 
he was doing a stress test. During the stress test, the machines read that he was having a heart attack. So they decided to go into his heart and clear whatever blockage they could find. They went in, no blockage. So he said, as far as the heart attack thing, he said, all those people that were praying for me, apparently God heard you because it turned out to be nothing. So no heart attack, cancer-free. So I said to him, well, then it's time for you to get back to work. When are you coming to GCA? In the weeks to come, Barney Johnson will be back here to preach for us. And I'm, I'm looking forward to having my friend back here to talk about what he's learned over the course of the struggles that he's had this year. But at this moment, it's all good news. And after all the bad news, I'm happy for good news. So, okay, so I keep talking about this letter that I have in front of me here. Don Tyndall wrote to me and said, Dear Brother McClarty, thank you for allowing me to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to the body of believers at Grace Christian Assembly. I am humbled that you would count me worthy to preach the gospel to one of America's finest assemblies of Christians. And I can truly say that I felt at home with the believers at GCA. That's my favorite part of this letter. I like it when visitors come here and then they write to me, send me a note afterwards and say, I really enjoyed the people of GCA. I really enjoyed being in your midst. Everybody treated me well. Everybody was friendly. I'm always happy for that. But when a preacher can say, I've come to your congregation, to your assembly, and you were gone, and yet they made me feel at home. They made me feel comfortable. They made me feel loved and accepted. That, that just does my heart an awful lot of good. And so the reason I read that was to say to you all, Thank you for being like that while I was gone. Because it really makes me, and you'll excuse my saying this, it makes me proud as a pastor to have a congregation of people that have that kind of character to them. And uh, for Don to come out of retirement to come here to preach and then for you all to treat him so well just really, really made me happy. He went on and said, thank you for your most generous gift. I have to tell you that every time we have ever given a gift to Don Tyndall, every time, this is forever, this is back when we were baptizing people in his building. I was ordained in his building. So we, we go back a long way. And every time we've ever given him a gift, he's given it back. So we outsmarted him and started uh, getting him gift cards and giving them to his wife. <laughs> and so he was sort of forced to take some things from us. So Tom told me that last week, he, or two weeks ago, that he gave a gift to Don, a, a check, and that Don handed it back. And Tom said no. And apparently three times... The hammerlock did it. The hammerlock <laughs> did it. Now, apparently it took three times of insisting in order for Don to actually take the gift. And I'm glad he did. He said, I did not expect anything for preaching, but Brother Tom said that I could not leave without the gift. So apparently the hammerlock did work. <laughs> then he went on and said, I trust your labors at the conference were profitable to those who were in attendance and to those who hear the messages when they are posted. We're praying that 
Our Heavenly Father will continue his blessings on you and on everyone at Grace Christian Assembly. I talked to Don the other day, and I said, you know, this pulpit is open to you anytime you want. I said, if you have a message burning in your heart and you need somebody to tell, come tell us. So I hope he takes me up on that offer. One more song, and then we will have the morning message. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. Is there anything more we need to know as we worship this morning? Let's sing her great hymn, To God be the glory.
Romans 8. I know exactly where we were three weeks ago. But if I were to pick up at the exact place where we left off, I'd be starting with the words, and in the same way. And that's kind of like beginning a conversation with, and in conclusion. So we can't really start there. We are going to get eventually this morning to the section of Romans 8 that pretty much every Reformed, Calvinistic, sovereign grace person knows. This is one of those key texts that we go to in order to defend the five points or the five solas or the idea that God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. But you will notice, and I have pointed it out time and time again, that up until Romans 8, Paul has not mentioned anything about election or predestination or God's foreknowledge. He has just simply laid out the problem and the solution. The problem is that we're sinners. The problem is that we're desperately depraved and incapable of helping ourselves. Paul has made that abundantly clear. Paul has made it clear that there's nobody who does good, no, not even one. And then once he has said that Jews are under sin, Gentiles are under sin, after he has pointed out that the law is no help in chapter 7, that we are incapable of redeeming ourselves or making ourselves any better via the law, he then turns from us to the solution. And the solution is not us. And the solution is not our flesh. The solution is not the law. The solution is wholly and completely Christ. The finished work of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the accepted sacrifice of Christ, accepted for sin by God, all of that is the solution to our problem. And I have said many times, that is the gospel. That is the good news. First, there's the bad news of our desperate condition, and then there's the very, very good news of the solution. And Paul was able to lay all of that out for us theologically without ever mentioning election, predestination, foreknowledge, any of that. But now he's going to pull back the curtain and show us what's really going on behind the scenes. And he's going to show us that the same way that he has demonstrated that faith has always been the mode that leads to salvation. That's always been the case. He went all the way back to Abraham and said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Therefore, all we who have faith like that are the children of Abraham. He is the father of the faithful so that we would make the connection and understand that it has always been righteousness in exchange for faith that got anybody justified. It's never been by works. It's never been by the law. The only thing the law did was demonstrate how sinful we were because of our incapability to actually keep the law. In that same way that Paul has demonstrated that it's always been faith, he's now going to start demonstrating that it has always been by the sovereign choice of God. At the end of chapter 8, 
He's going to talk about election, foreordination, that stuff. But then in chapter 9, he's going to start demonstrating how the history of Israel demonstrates that God has always been in the process of picking and choosing. So that we don't think that this is some novelty that Paul dreamed up. So that we don't start thinking, well, that's the Pauline theology, but there's also the Jesus theology. And just in case you think I'm making that up, you can go on the internet today and you can find people who say the whole of what you need to know about salvation is found in the Gospels and in what Jesus said. But then Paul invented these things, these ideas of election and predestination. But Paul is going to demonstrate, come chapter 9, 10, 11, that God has always been in the business of choosing, of deciding, of determining of sovereignly as a king declaring how things were going to go, who was going to be saved, who was going to end up in his presence, and who wasn't. And that's always been the way it worked. Those that he chose, those are the ones that he sent his spirit to, producing faith in them, resulting in them having that persevering faith that will get them all the way to their promised eternity. But now Paul is going to draw that curtain back and say, even beyond just that, even beyond what happens here on the planet, even beyond what happens in time, God has determined these things from eternity. Before the foundation of the world, God was picking and choosing people who he was going to bring ultimately into his presence. So I wrestle sometimes with the question, well, then should election be included when we, quote-unquote, preach the gospel? Is there such a thing as the gospel of election? You'll see that phraseology tossed around a lot on the Internet. People will talk about the gospel of election And this is why I keep trying to make the differentiation between what Paul has declared to us already as the gospel, but then he pulls the curtain open and says, and this is the eternal mind of God that led to the people who are being saved by the work of the gospel. And I keep narrowing it down to the phrase that I've quoted a couple times now in this Roman series. The quote comes from John Riesinger, but the quote is, election is not the gospel. It is the guarantee of the gospel's effectiveness. And I think that's accurate. I think that's the best way to understand what Paul is doing. He has taught us the gospel already. He has shown us our desperate state and the solution to our state. That is the very essence of what the gospel is. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. That is the very essence of it. He raised again. God accepted that sacrifice. Good news. But then God didn't just leave it hanging there for sinful human beings to decide. He didn't just do all that work, send his son, sacrifice his son, and then sit back and say, Gabriel, let's see if that did anything. Let's see if that works for anybody. 
Instead, he guaranteed that his son's sacrifice was absolutely going to be effective and was going to accomplish exactly what God intended it to accomplish. And the way that God guaranteed the effectiveness of the work of Christ was to elect some people who would be given to Christ, who would believe in Christ, who would have faith in Christ, so that the work that Christ did was actually an effective work, not just random chance. You understand what I'm saying? So election has its place, and its place is to guarantee the effectiveness of the gospel. And so far, we've heard the gospel. These first eight and a half chapters have told us what we need to know of the gospel. But then Paul is now going to tell us what sovereign God did to guarantee that the gospel would result in a people group who would spend the rest of eternity glorifying the Son for what the Son did. You got it? it. In other words, an absolutely sovereign God who can do absolutely anything he wants to do, who can do it with whoever he wants to do it, created people for the purpose of glorifying his Son. And those people were determined before the foundation of the world to come to faith in his son so that the sacrificial work of the son would be honored and glorified and praised for the rest of eternity so that he can set his son up in the position where every knee is bowing, every tongue is confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's absolutely going to happen. The phrase that I have used many, many times Speaking of prophecy, I'll tie it into this in a moment. I have said prophecy only works if the future is definite. Well, same thing here. Election only works if the future is definite. Election only works if God has determined the end from the beginning. If he has left anything to chance, then you know that Josiah would screw it up. Well, he agrees. He's nodding. Don't give him awe. You know that if it was left up to chance for any of us, we'd mess it up. If there was any part of it that he left to us, we're incapable of doing it. So he had to make the determination not only of what the cure was going to be, but then he had to guarantee that the cure would be effective. And he guaranteed that by choosing people who would definitely come to faith in his son. And those are the people that he put his Holy Spirit in who would then produce faith in those people so that those people could exchange that faith for righteousness so that they would end up justified in the sight of God and be forever eternally in the presence of God, glorifying the Son because of the finished work the Son did, an agreement made between the Father and the Son before the foundation of the world. You get all that? These are big, gigantic concepts. These are things that are way beyond our comprehension. But before we get to that, Paul's going to say something else that is way beyond our comprehension. The older I get, 
and it seems to be speeding by at this point. But the older I get, the more I come to realize that none of us really have any idea what's going on in heaven. I mean, there are just these big, magnificent concepts. Like, for instance, how do you, Kenneth, I'm just going to point you out because you moved forward and that'll teach you. Um, How do you get to talk to a magnificent, holy, righteous, omnipotent creator of all things? How do you get to do that? Well, Paul is about to say, in your incapability, you can't really do it because you don't know how to talk to him. Here, I'll give you an example. If you were to go to England and you got a chance to go meet the queen, do you know what they do before you meet the queen? They put you through a crash course of what to do when you meet the queen. Because you don't know what to do when you meet the queen. You don't know if you bow, do you shake her hand, how deep do we curtsy, how, I mean, what do we do? What, what, do we, what are we supposed to say? Does she talk first? Do we talk first? Is it okay to make a joke? What do we do when we meet the queen? We don't know. We don't know how to talk to God. We don't know how to say things that are correctly expressive of everything he is. We don't know how to go to him and say, help me. We just find ourselves groaning inside ourselves. The more you know about everything Paul has said, about the depth of your depravity, have you ever really mused on that? Have you ever laid in bed and thought about how genuinely corrupt you are? Have you ever come face to face with the reality of you? When you do, boy, it it drives you to groanings that words can't say. Okay, Paul's about to say, the Holy Spirit then takes those groanings and brings them to God on your behalf because he knows how to talk to God. And God knows what the intention, what the mind, what the purpose is of the Holy Spirit and the same God who reads the hearts of men knows the intention of the Spirit so the Spirit can intercede for you with groanings too deep for words. I mean, this is stuff we can't begin to comprehend. We don't know how to say what we ought to say. We don't know how to do what we ought to do. We don't know how to be how we ought to be. Paul has just gotten done saying that in chapter 7. Talked about, I want to do the right thing. I want to do well. I just don't find it within myself to do well. Well, then how are you going to find it within yourself to go talk to that God? You can't do it. So God... The omnipotent master of everything determined that he was going to create a go-between. Not just when you sin, John writes, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So when you sin, you have an advocate pleading your case. But also when you go to talk to God, when you go to plead to God, when you go to say to God, I know deep down within myself how corrupt I am. I understand my desperate need of you. I understand when the pain of who you are is more than you can express, the Holy Spirit will express it to God for you. 
And that's wonderful to know. It's wonderful to know that God has created not only an advocate who will plead your case for you when you sin, but an advocate who will plead to God when you don't know how to talk to God. That's how complete the activity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is, not only in your salvation, but in keeping you saved day to day. So there, that was all introduction We were going to start at verse 26, but it says, and in the same way. So we can't start there. Let's start reading at Romans 8, verse 1, to build up speed until we get to verse 26. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. The law of Moses he refers to as the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation. But the law of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ set you free from that law. Therefore, the law can't condemn you. Therefore, there is now, therefore, no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, then the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do. What is it that the law could not do, by the way? Couldn't save anybody. Couldn't justify anybody. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. For if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who indwells you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. 
But if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. For all who were being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children... Heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. For I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans. And suffers the pains of childbirth until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. For the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, there are two ways to read the end of that verse. The Spirit himself intercedes for us. The groanings too deep for words may be a reference to us groaning within ourselves the same way that the whole of creation groans, the same way that the creation groans and suffers pains of childbirth together until now, that may be a reference to us groaning within ourselves, reaching the point where we can't express words anymore. Or it may also be that the Spirit intercedes for us, carrying the things to God that we ourselves don't even know we should be praying. Because none of us knows how to Pray the way we ought to. Here, I'll give you a quick example. Have you ever caught yourself praying and realized, oh yeah, this is what I always say. I always kind of say this same stuff. Well, if you have figured out that that's kind of what you always say, God has figured that out too. Sometimes, though, 
There are just things that you should be expressing. I mean, again, think about the example we used earlier. There's Kenneth and there's God. And there's this huge gap in between the two. And sometimes Kenneth really ought to be saying things to God that he doesn't even know he should be saying. He doesn't even know how to pray prayers that then the spirit would bring like incense before the throne of God as a sweet smell that would please God. He doesn't even know how to say that because he's human. And so the Holy Spirit takes our prayers cleans them up, takes them to God, presents them to God like a sweet-smelling savor and says for us the things we don't know how to say. Which is why Paul would say, we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. If we're really thinking about the distance between us and God, and I don't know if I can adequately put this into words. I do words for a living, and sometimes words aren't adequate. But communicating with that God, and I don't know how to express to you the grandeur of God, the God who has surrounded himself with angels and lights and an emerald rainbow behind himself who rides on a chariot of clouds who has wheels within wheels and eyes within eyes and 24 elders and living beasts that bow down before him and I mean that God how do you possibly express yourself to that God sometimes it goes beyond words to just groaning And so the spirit knows how to convey that to God in a way that God could accept because we don't know how to do it. And here's what Paul says about it in verse 27. And he that searches the hearts, that would be God, God who knows your heart, the one who can search your heart and know the sincerity, the genuineness or the hardness of your heart. That very one knows what is the mind of the spirit, says the NASB. The Greek word is the inclination or the purpose. He knows what the purpose is for the spirit coming to him again, carrying prayers on behalf of you. And so the one who knows your heart knows why the spirit is interceding for you understands the inclination of the spirit and therefore the spirit can carry to God the things you don't know you ought to be taking to him. You feel inadequate yet? (laughs) Yeah, that's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to say, look, you can't help yourself. You can't fix yourself. You can't justify yourself. You can't clean yourself up. You can't do the law. Everything about you is depraved, and so you're incapable. Therefore, God had to do absolutely everything necessary for your full, complete redemption and salvation. And he did it so much that he knew there was no way you were ever going to be either good enough or righteous enough to even know what words to say. 
and that even though he redeemed you and saved you and told you about it, you were still going to sin. You're still going to rebel. You're still going to fall. So what does he do? He makes Jesus Christ the righteous, your advocate for those times that you fall, and makes the Holy Spirit himself your advocate for those times when you don't know how to say stuff to God. He did it all. That's my point. This salvation that we're talking about is such a full and complete salvation and you are so incapable of accomplishing any part of it that God put so many elements into place that this is much, much more than I think our little human pea brains can begin to conceive of. It's so much bigger. It's so much grander. Somehow, you, the sinner are going to stand in good stead with the absolutely sovereign, holy, righteous, magnificent, creator, king of all things. And it's not going to have anything to do with you. Do you think you're going to have any problem saying thank you for all eternity? All day long. All day long, you'll be singing praises. And who will you be singing those praises to? Father, Son, and Spirit. And you're going to worship the son for the work that he did. And that is guaranteed by the fact that God chose some people who would be the recipients of all that magnificent goodness. And that's what election is. You getting a feel for it yet? All right. In the same way, the spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind, the inclination, the purpose of the Spirit is. Because he, the Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So you have to pray according to the will of God. You're not good at knowing how to pray according to the will of God. So he puts his spirit between you and him so that you can finally pray to God through the spirit in a way that is according to the will of God. And notice what's the foundational function behind all of this. The will of God. This all has to do with the will of God. All of creation has to do with the will of God. The fact that you're here right now has to do with the will of God. I don't mean at GCA right now, but that's also true. The very fact that you're also on the planet right now and know your own name, that's according to the will of God. Everything that has happened in this creation so far has happened according to the will of God. That is the function, that is the purpose, that is the driving force behind everything that has happened. Everything is according to the will of God. And listen to how Paul is now going to expand on the will of God. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Now, oftentimes that verse will be yanked from its context and it'll be used when somebody 
has a bad day. Something bad happens, somebody's sick, somebody's going through a struggle, and then some Christian friend will say, well, you know, all things work together for good. But that's not the way Paul is using it. Notice the context it's in. That's why I've been driving the context. That's why I read the whole chapter to get up to this verse so that you understand that it's God did this, God did this, God did this, God did this. God has put intercessors between you and him so that you could pray. God has put an intercessor between you and him so when you sin, you're not completely cast off. God has accomplished your full, complete redemption in his son. God has done everything necessary for your full complete eternal redemption and so Paul can confidently say everything that God is doing he has done for your good because he's doing it all according to his own will and he has already chosen you since before the foundation of the world and therefore he has exercised his omnipotent power to make sure you're going to end up in his eternal presence and therefore everything he takes you through and everything he's doing for you and everything he's doing by his son and everything he's done by the spirit is all working for your good you 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 Crummy little you. You who don't even know how to talk to God right. You who don't even know. Boy, did you hear that rattle? Don't make me laugh. When I laugh, that's when I start coughing. A a trick that Janine knows. And she she loves to make me laugh so that I... She's cruel. I'm telling you. You... Absolutely everything that is going to result in your eternal salvation is the result of God doing all things necessary to get you there. Therefore, all things indeed work for good to those who love God, who are, just so you don't start thinking, well, okay then, I love God, I chose to love God, therefore God is responding to my love by making sure that all things work well for me. No, the next part of it is to those who have been called. Okay, so did God call everybody? Is it a general call? Is it a wide open call to absolutely everybody? Well, as he continues to define the calling of God, you're going to realize that he's not talking about a general calling. Even though we do cast the gospel out there for whoever has ears and whoever can hear it, nevertheless, the call of God is very, very specific. It's people who he has chosen since before the foundation of the world. And then he did not leave them to themselves. He specifically called them to himself. Here, I'll I'll make it more specific. Uh, So you were going through your life. Kellen, I'm going to pick on you because I kind of know your life. I've known Kellen since he was like almost Mia's size. I've known Kellen a long time. I know the ups and downs of Kellen's life. And uh, there was a period of time when we'd have to say Kellen didn't look like a saved individual. Is that fair? Very fair. Okay, that was fair. And then one day... Something happened to Kellen. The Bible meant something to him. Salvation meant something to him. He cared about the things of God. What happened? Why is he sitting here now 
given what we know about his background. Because had he continued going the way he was going, he would not be sitting here today. Fair to say? Okay. What happened? Something happened in his life. Now, the transition from rebellious sinner to somebody who cares about the things of God, did that happen because Kellen smarted up? Kellen wised up one day. Kellen woke up one day and went, you know, I should probably stop this sin thing and I should probably go chase after God. That didn't happen. So what happened? Because a relationship was formed between him and God and he didn't start it. Well, then who started it? It has to be God that started it. God called him. Kellen. Can you think of any of your friends from those days who at this point are not Christians? Pretty much all of them. Pretty much all of them. Still continuing in the life that they used to have, yeah? Okay. Why didn't they respond the way you responded? Because God has not called them. God didn't call them. He called you. This is a specific call. This is not only specific... It's what we refer to theologically as an effectual call. In other words, if God is calling you, he'll get you. He doesn't lose. He doesn't try to do things. And he doesn't call people just in case they might decide to follow him. After all, we're talking about a sovereign king here who does everything in his own creation the way he wants to have things done. And he chose some people before the foundation of the world. He wrote their names down in the Lamb's Book of Life. What are the chances then, after he has killed his son for those people, what are the chances that he's going to lose a single one of them? It's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. So here's how Paul put it. We know that God causes all things. By the way, the word things there in the NASB, I think it's also in the King James. The word things there is added by the translator. The phrase all things is just the single Greek word pas, all. So what Paul really said is, for we know that all of it, just all All of it works together for good to those who love God, to those who are called, and again he uses the phrase, according to his purpose. So why is this stuff happening? I'm just driving it home over and over again. This is all up to God. This is all God's purpose. This is all the will of God. This is all the good pleasure of God. This is God doing what God's determined to do. This is a sovereign doing whatever a sovereign wants to do. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. The Bible just keeps saying that over and over and over again, which means that salvation, eternal redemption, cannot have anything to do with you. It just can't. Because then you'd be able to say, well, yeah, it was 99% God. But I kicked in my part. And if I hadn't kicked in my part, then doggone it, me and God would have not gotten me saved. 
No, it's all completely God who has determined to do what God has determined to do. And because he is all powerful, he has the power to do whatever he wants to do. And because you're powerless, he can do whatever he wants with you. And so he does. And the good news for you is what he is determined to do is save you. Not leave you to you, but do for you all the stuff you can't do. You don't know how to pray. You don't know how to be righteous. You don't know how to justify yourself. You don't know how to do the law. You don't know how to do anything except sin. You don't know how to do anything but get old, get sick, and die. That's all you know how to do. He had to do what Paul calls the all. He did all of it because you couldn't do any of it. Do you feel like saying thank you yet? I mean, when you really get a hold of what Paul is saying about what God did for you, you should never really have a bad day. You should go through the rest of your life saying, okay, this moment right now is a little tough, but guess what God did for me? Right now, I'm a little broke. But guess what God did for me? Right now I'm a bit sick. But guess what God did for me? Right now I'm losing my temper because that thing went wrong. And that's a, But guess what God did for me? If you ever really get a hold of this, not only will it give you the confidence to live out your life worshiping and praising him, but it will also drive you to want to be obedient to him. Because of everything he's done for you. Here's what Paul says. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he predestined, those are the ones he called, and whom he called, those are the ones he justified, and those that he justified, these are the ones that he glorified. In theological circles, those two verses are known as the golden chain of redemption. The word chain is used there because it holds together like links. And the same group of people is spoken of from beginning to end. Because it starts with whom he foreknew and it ends with those are the ones he glorified. And then there's just steps in between God for knowing and God glorifying. So now let's dig into the words a little bit because very common to hear people who are trying to dismiss this theology, very common to hear them say, well, see right there, it says that whom God foreknew. In other words, he knew stuff about people. He knew that Leon was going to choose him. And since he knew that Leon was going to choose him, he then chose Leon in response to what he knew about Leon. 
And so whom God foreknew. The problem is that it doesn't say that God knew stuff about people. It says he knew the people whom God foreknew as individuals. Those people he had that infinite foreknowledge of because he chose them, because he wrote them down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Those were the people he had intimate relationship with. The example that I've used time and time again is the Bible says that Adam knew Eve and she had a son. Well, that's a whole lot more than he just recognized who she was. God being the God of omniscience and all knowledge, he knows who everybody is and he knows everything about everybody. So Paul isn't saying that. Instead, he's saying there are particular human beings whom God had intimate relationship with from the beginning. And because of that relationship, he then predetermined, predestined some people that they were going to be conformed to the image of Christ. This is the part where I said, This is God's determination that the gospel would be effective. He determined in advance that some people were going to be conformed to the image of Christ. And because he made that determination in advance, it's absolutely going to happen. Which is why Paul's theology here ends with the glorification of those people. Because in the mind of God, God having decided since before eternity passed, having predestined that certain individuals were going to be conformed to the image of his son, he can say in advance, those are the people that are glorified. You feeling very glorified yet? I don't. Between this coughing and hacking and choking, my body is a mucus factory at this moment. I know, gross, I know. It's, and I don't feel very glorified. I wake up most days and just try to cough the junk out of my lungs, and I'm not feeling glorified. In the mind of God, he has determined, predestined, that the end result of me is going to be that I am conformed to the image of Christ. And he's in that process right now of bringing me into that image. So that process looks different for every individual. God deals with individuals, but there are some universals. Some of those universals include that he's going to take you away from yourself, away from your flesh, and he's going to start bringing you into the mind of the spirit so that you start to live, walk, By the spirit. And that is part of the process of bringing you to the very thing he has predetermined to do for you, which is to conform you, change you, take you from your sinful self until you can be reckoned to be a very son of God. I mean, that's remarkable, remarkable language. So what did he do? Those that he foreknew, those particular people that he had intimate relationship with, those are the ones that he predestined, predetermined to be conformed to the image of his son, to Christ, 
that Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. Don't go past that too quickly. He's talking about you being brothers to Christ. Paul has already used the language of adoption so that we can cry, Abba, Father. God's purpose for you is that you're part of his family. God's purpose for you is that you can be eternally reckoned to be a brother, a sister of Jesus Christ. That's why you're being conformed into the image of Christ. A few minutes ago I said, uh, you don't know how to talk to that God. You don't know how to approach that God. You don't know how to pray to that God. You don't know anything about how you should behave in front of that God. But Christ does. But the Holy Spirit does. And so his determination is to make you brothers and sisters of Christ. So that through all of eternity, you can reside in his presence. You can have intimate relation with him. You can call him your father. That's his determination for you. And as I keep saying over and over, and I can't say it enough, you, you, for what reason would God decide that you need to be in heaven with him? Because you're you. And he's decided, he's predetermined, he's predestined that you are going to end up conformed to such a degree that you could be rightly called a brother, a sister, a co-heir with Christ. And you don't know how to do any of that. So he had to determine to do it all, which is what Paul is saying. Those that he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he, the son, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, if God's determination is that Jesus is going to have a people who will worship and praise him for all of eternity who will be co-heirs with him, who will be brethren to him, what do you think the chances are that that's not going to happen? God has determined it right here. That's how secure the people of God are. That's why the doctrines of grace talk so much about perseverance and eternal security. Because if it is God, the all-omnipotent king God, who has determined these things and is doing these things, there's just no way for them to fail. We're not talking about a God that fails at things. We're talking about a God who has made a royal decree that he is going to give his son people to worship him. So get this right. This isn't about you. It's not about you, George. Turns out, it's not about you, Ming. It's not about, it's not about any of us. This is about God glorifying his son. You're just the fortunate, gracious recipient of that. But this is about God wanting to glorify his son eternally. There's just no way for that not to work out. Now, you're going to be called into that, predestined to that. But the end result of that, no matter how good it gets for you, the end result of that is all the glorification of Christ. 
So there's no room for bragging. There's no room for boasting. There's no room for any of us thinking, well, yeah, God would take me. Yeah, I don't understand why he'd take Kellen, but he would take me. Because No, there's no room for any of us to think this is about me because it's not about you. It's about Christ. Whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son so that he, the son, Christ, would be the firstborn among many brethren. He's the preeminent one. And those that he predestined, that people group, those are the people that he effectually called. And that same people group that he called, those are the ones that he also justified, made personally righteous, imputed righteousness to. Those are the ones that he gave the Holy Spirit And that Holy Spirit produced faith. And that faith is exchanged for righteousness. Those particular people get all the benefits of Father, Son, and Spirit. Because they're the ones that God chose to have intimate relationship with before the foundation of the world. Whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, those are the ones that he glorified. And then Paul can't help himself. He then says, so if God is for you, I mean, that's really for you. You getting some sense of how for you God is? You getting some sense of everything God has done for you? You! Do you understand me? You! Everything he's done for you... If he's for you, if he's on your side, if he's predetermined your outcome, if he has known you and loved you and had intimate relationship with you since before the foundation of the world, if that God, the omnipotent, masterful God who no one even knows how to approach, who even the stars and the sun and the moon flee away because they're not holy in his sight, if that God is for you, who can be against you? How secure are you? I mean, God is for you. And if you get some sense of God and you, then you have some sense of the magnificence of this gospel we preach. Yeah? Yes. yes. You feel good yet? Yes, sir. You certainly ought to. All right, we'll pick up right there next week, and then you'll see how Paul makes the transition from not only is God sovereign in electing and predestining people to salvation, but he's going to argue that it's always been that way, that God has always picked and chosen, and he's going to go all the way back to Abraham to prove it, just like he did talking about faith. He's going to demonstrate that this is how God has always acted. All right? All right. So if God is for you, who can be against you? Who can be against you? So you go through your life this week and you happen to say something about God. You happen to say something to one of your friends, one of your coworkers. You happen to say something about the Bible. You happen to say something good and positive about God and they don't like it. If God is for you, Who can be against you? You wake up tomorrow and you realize, oh crud, I got the bronchitis from Jim. 
but if God is for you, who can be against you? You get up tomorrow and you go, my bank account is in the negative numbers. But if God is for you, who can be against you? That, that is the overriding principle that ought to carry you through this life. I'm now facing the regular sin that I always... I'm not talking personally me now. This is an example. I, oh, no, here I go again. I'm right back to where I never wanted to be, and I'm doing the things I never... If God is for you, even your own flesh can't be against you. Nobody can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And that, my friends, is really good news. Yes, it is. All right. Questions? Yes, sir. I have two good questions, but I'm going to save one of them for next week. Okay. Respect for my fellow worshipers. It seems that these verses are clearly talking about predestination of salvation. Uh-huh. It's about soteriology. But there's another concept, which I think goes by the name foreknowledge rather than predestination. And I've been told by Alex and others that that is in the Bible. And I've told the story before about when I had my stroke. Alex came to my hospital room and I said, you mean God knew this was going to happen to me since before the world? And he said, planned it, George. Didn't just know it, planned it. So the question is simply this. Are there some, can you point us to a couple of verses that support <coughs> foreknowledge of the events of the world? Foreknowledge of Maestro and, you know, the invasion of Pearl Harbor and D-Day and everything that's ever happened in the world. God not only knew it, but planned it. Since before the world was formed. Now, that's not the same thing as knowing which people he was choosing as his sheep. Right. But I think it's important because I think a lot of people, you know, boy, that sure affects the way you look at your life and the way you look at what happens in the world every day. Right. I would go beyond that and say it's not just foreknowledge, what you've described as foreordination. Foreordination. Yeah, that in advance he has determined what's going to happen. And it really goes back to what I said, I don't know, 45 minutes ago when I said for prophecy to work, the future has to be definite. You've got a Bible full of prophecy, and I have tried over all these years to demonstrate that every prophecy in the Bible has been satisfied literally, genuinely in time, and that the Bible says it's coming. So there's no way for those prophecies to come true unless God has foreordained the future. The whole Bible declares that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, and he determines. He takes up one king. He takes down another king. He raises up nations. And, and then you read verses like, The lot is cast into the lap, and the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. You're talking about a very small thing. You're talking about casting random lots into a lap, and yet the Proverbs say God is intimately involved in the outcome of all of it. Uh, If you look at Jesus saying, uh, the sparrows, two of them are sold for a farthing, which is half a penny, nothing. And he says, and one of them can't fall from the sky without your father. So everything 
is under God's dominion, under his determination, under his foreordination. So I think, actually, instead of asking the question, can you find a verse that says that, it's more like, can you find a verse that says that's not true? Because you find that concept all the way through the Bible. Whether it's Daniel being told what kingdoms are coming, or whether it's the book of Revelation that hasn't happened yet. All the way through the Bible, you find this is what's going to occur, and then it happens in time and history. So that's what foreordination is. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Just speaking of Daniel, because as soon as he was teaching things, you know, even some of the bigger things like, you know, D-Day or, or things like that, right there in Daniel it says, it is he, speaking of God, who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men who understand it. He's just total control of all things. Yeah. Sure. The plagues and terrible things like that, I mean, <coughs> were, were killed, and that's considered a horrible thing. But God warned ahead of time that the Pharaoh's going to say no. I'm going to harden his heart, and he's going to say no, and these people are going to die because of it. <laughs> it's not that God said no, he might say no, and if he does, I have something planned. Yeah. God said he's going to say no, and I will bring curses and plagues yeah. upon them. Yeah, he's not the God of plan B. Jesus and the blind man. Why is this guy blind? Yeah, he'd been blind for 30 years so that Jesus would have somebody to heal. See how quickly examples are coming up? Because it really permeates the Bible. Yes, sir? To reverse the question, it would be like saying, can you show me a point in the Bible where God said, I didn't see that coming. Right. It's like the old phrase, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? He's always been in control of what happens. But then again, that kind of falls into the larger concept of what I started saying today about God being a king. From the very beginning of everything we know about God from the Bible, he always acts like, speaks like, and controls everything like a king. And that's part of what we mean when we say he's sovereign. Yes, sir, Duane. Isaiah 46, 9. Go ahead and read it for us. Remember the former things, long past. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no other like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Declaring the end from the beginning. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Yeah, so as I said, it, it, it's an idea, it's a concept that just permeates Scripture. Anything else? That was question one. We'll look forward to question two next week. Okay, the sequel. Okay. Anything else? All right, good. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Now say it like you mean it. Bye. Now say get out of here. No, that's okay. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.